attack on the military training base near the Polish border, how will that affect NATO's response? And if Russia starts to directly target shipments of weapons making their way from, say, Poland to Ukraine, is the war getting dangerously close to a new level of escalation? Now, the attack comes as the prime minister gets back from his trip overseas to meet with European allies, where he was pressed on the federal government's defense spending. Remember, the NATO alliance has an agreed-upon target to spend 2% of GDP on defense, but last year, Canada spent less than 1.4%. During the trip, the Prime Minister said he's open to raising Canada's military spending. We also recognize that uh, the context is changing rapidly around the world, and we need to make sure that the women and men who serve in the Canadian Armed Forces have all the equipment necessary to be able to stand strongly as we always have as members of NATO, and we will uh, continue to look at what more we can do. So how much more could Canada increase its defense spending by, and will Canada provide more lethal and non-lethal weapons to Ukraine? Let's find out. Joining me now is the National Defense Minister, Anita Anand. Minister, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, obviously, I have to start with Russia launching this missile, missile attack on uh, the military range near Lviv, which is the former headquarters of the Canadian Operation Unifier. Just to be clear, are there any Canadian or NATO trainers there at the time of the attack and any casualties? No, Canadian Armed Forces members uh, left Ukraine a number of days ago and are safely in Poland and other areas. M Minister, Russia said yesterday that it deems shipments of weapons to Ukraine legitimate targets. Now they've, they've hit this base. This is I think at one point it's about 15 kilometers from the Polish border. First of all, what message is Russia sending and how will NATO respond to this attack? Well, Russia is clearly a horrific aggressor in this situation, killing children and families randomly and committing war crimes. This latest attack is another example of unforgivable Russian aggression and the NATO alliance stands united to ensure that first, all help possible can flow to Ukraine. Second, that we as an alliance stand united and in support of Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, which states that an attack on one is an attack on all. We will protect every inch of NATO territory. Minister, uh, Canada's been uh, sending lethal aid, uh, the, the US and the NATO alliance has across the border. Now that Russia is targeting it clearly, uh, will NATO be taking different means, sending different kinds of weapons, now that Western Ukraine and those supply lines are clearly under attack by Russia? What is, does NATO have to take a different, different means now of sending me, uh, weapons to Ukraine? I appreciate the question, Evan. Let me first start with Canadian aid. We ensured that $7.8 million worth of lethal aid arrived in Ukraine by February 22nd and was handed over to Ukrainian soldiers whom we trained as the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, after that, we are continuing to ship our lethal aid, Carl uh, Gustav anti-tank weapons, rocket launchers, 7,500 hand grenades, and we are utilizing two CC-130 
uh, airplanes in order to help the NATO allies flow this aid through NATO countries. Apart from those details, however, we are keeping a very close hold on the price precise logistics of the aid flowing. Why? Because of the very item that you raised in your question, that our supply lines are being carefully monitored, and we need to make sure that the aid flows safely and securely into the hands of the Ukrainian soldiers. But just to be clear, an attack on NATO supplies is not an attack on NATO. Is that clear? Well, it is, again, a good question, and the interpretation of Article 5 tends to surround geographical location. However, I am traveling to Brussels in the next two days, and I will raise questions such as this with my NATO counterparts. It is important that we take a full-fledged examination of the situation, including in the area of cyber attacks and what cyber attacks themselves mean for the interpretation of the legal documents that underpin the alliance and the deterrent and defensive structure that really is the foundation of the NATO alliance. Okay, that's interesting. The cyber attack one's interesting. Let me talk about foreign fighters for a minute. Um, Lots of people of Ukrainian descent around the world are flooding into Ukraine to fight. The the legal status of a foreign fighter is important because soldiers are protected by Geneva Convention, uh, foreign fighters aren't. Um, Are you encouraging Canadians who want to volunteer to help Ukraine to go to Ukraine? Are you encouraging Canadian foreign fighters there? And what is NATO's view on their legal status? We are not encouraging uh, Canadians to go to Ukraine to fight, given the very dire security situation in the country. Having said that, it is understandable, especially given the very large Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, that there are uh, Canadians of Ukrainian descent and others who wish to go to that country to fight alongside their Ukrainian brothers and sisters. And in that regard, it is an individual decision for them to do so. It'll be an interesting uh, legal question when, when that comes up. But, but the prime minister said on his trip, he's open to, to more military spending. Sweden is now committed to hitting 2% of their GDP, as are other countries, Germany as well. Is Canada in the next budget going to commit to reaching 2% of its GDP on defense spending given the new realities in the world now post-Russian invasion? Well, I want to take a step back and clarify that we are increasing our defense spending by 70% over the nine-year period beginning in 2017. And as part of our defense spending, we are creating additional Uh, military capabilities, uh, six new Arctic offshore patrol ships, two of which have been built, two new polar icebreakers, 88 new fighter jets. Uh, We will be awarding a contract this year. And in the short term, I will be bringing forward a robust package to modernize NORAD, uh, which would be going towards the 2%. The bottom line is that we have military spending in place in an increasing way and we will continue to respond to the evolving threat environment as we go forward given this very dire situation. Minister Anand, uh, a very dangerous escalation this morning. We very much appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. 
Is yesterday's man now the comeback kid? That's the challenge for Jean Charest, a man first elected as a progressive conservative back in 1984. That's right, when the Soviet Union boycotted the Olympics. He served as a minister in a party that no longer exists, the progressive conservatives under Brian Mulroney. And when it was reduced to the dust of just two seats, Mr. Charest took the frayed reins and tried to build it back. He won 20 seats, but the party never returned to glory. After a series of Western-style remakes, the new Conservative Party of Canada under Stephen Harper was born. With a separatist party in ascension there, Jean Charest became the leader of the Liberal Party of Quebec, eventually becoming the Premier there in 2003, winning three elections before finally losing in 2012. But now at the age of 63, carrying more political baggage than a Samsonite factory, Mr. Charest wants to lead the Conservative Party. And he's already facing withering attacks from opponent Pierre Polyevre, who doesn't even believe Mr. Charest is a conservative at all. So how does Jean Charest plan to win the conservative leadership race? And how does he fend off criticism from his opponents that he's not blue enough for the job? Let's find out. Joining me now, conservative leadership candidate Jean Charest. You are back. Great to see you. Uh, welcome back to, to the political race. Uh, Mr. Charest, Pierre Polyevre has already spent a lot of time attacking you. He says you're a liberal, you're not a conservative, you're a conservative of convenience, you've raised taxes, you had a price on carbon, you supported the long gun registry. All key things that he says prove you're not a conservative. How are you dealing with that attack? Well, I, I take it as a compliment, given the fact that he's spending more time attacking me than actually doing his own campaign. And on my own record, well, I have a long record of having governed with a, a, a rule of fiscal conservatism. We left a big surplus to the government of Mr. Legault, you know, and a higher credit rating in Quebec than Ontario. And uh, I governed with a very, very keen eye for economic growth. We left the economy of Quebec in very good shape. When he says I'm a liberal, I mean, is there anyone in the country that doesn't already know that I went to Quebec politics, Evan, because uh, to fight the separatist cause and a coalition party that was called the Liberal Party, as it is the case in British Columbia? I mean, to, to say that is ludicrous. But, you know, I take the, the attacks as a compliment because they are. They are. I mean, uh, and, and he, if he wants to spend more time attacking me than doing his own campaign, well, so be it. But there is a, a battle for the Conservative Party. Uh, some have, would argue uh, a, that Aaron O'Toole put out Brian Mulroney, who you were a cabinet minister in, uh, and he was stabbed in the front, stabbed in the back, and he got tossed out. Peter McKay tried the, the, the red Tory issue. That didn't work. Uh, your record is as a progressive conservative. Uh, has that been already tested and rejected by conservatives? Evan, my record is that of a conservative, and I am running as a conservative, not a hyphenated conservative, of which the membership of the party has had enough. They have had their fill of these hyphenated conservatives out there, and they want a conservative. Now, what does that mean? It means fiscal conservatives, for which I have a very strong record. Market-based economy, for which I have an unparalleled record. Policies that promote economic growth, prosperity, and allow families to have more revenue. It includes policies that support families, for which I have a very strong record. Respecting the rule of law. And finally, Evan, practicing federalism that respects the jurisdictions of the provinces. And what I will bring to this job 
when I unite this party is being a prime minister that understands how the federal system works and make it work to get big projects done. That's the leadership and the conservative values that I will bring to this job and for which I have an unparalleled record after 28 years of public life. Okay, let's do some rapid fire so people can get a sense. Would you, you had a, a, a cap and price system uh, on um, carbon in Quebec. Would you now support a price on carbon as a federal leader? I support a policy that is going to bring to the table Alberta, the provinces, and bring to the table the oil and gas industry <coughs> so that we can develop policies that we can actually implement. And it, it'll include a price on carbon, but it will not discriminate against rural Canadians. It won't be a wealth transfer tax. It will be a policy that is smart, intelligent, that allows us to develop carbon sequestration, to develop hydrogen, whether green or blue, or small modular reactors, and biofuels and hydro. Those, that's the smart thing that conservatives can do. And that, by the way, that we've done in the past, whether on the Montreal Protocol or whether on the Clean Air Act of 1990. We did it. I was there. Now, can we be smart about it? and do something good for the country, the economy and climate? The answer is yes. So you reject it. And when Pierre probably ever says, we got to just ditch a, any, a price on carbon, a carbon tax, is that too simplified? Is that too simplified for you? Apparently he said that we need to scrap the carbon tax. And the last time I heard that was Jean Chrétien saying he was going to scrap the GST. Draw your own conclusion. Interesting. You previously supported the long gun registry. Do you support, for example, now the idea of banning handguns in municipalities, in cities? Well, there's a real issue about handguns in municipalities in Canada. <clears throat> and I think what a conservative government should do is focus resources and some, some real uh, muscle on, uh, on uh, stopping these handguns from coming into Canada, period, at the border. That's where the effort should be put. And I see the problem in Montreal. I see it in Toronto. I see it in other cities. I mean, isn't that the common sense, intelligent thing we should we should be doing as opposed to going after a hunter or a farmer in that in, in northern Saskatchewan? I mean, this is a common sense uh, thing that every government should be focusing on. In 2012, when you were the Quebec Premier, you introduced a controversial bill, Bill 78, that banned protests near the university grounds in the wake of student protests. Okay, I understand that. Now, it was extremely controversial then. Uh, some saw it as an infringement on civil liberty, some supported it. The federal government recently invoked the Emergencies Act to address the trucker convoys. Two questions on it. One, do you support, did you support the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act? I think the Trudeau government very badly mishandled that whole episode. By tarring uh, this protest and the protesters under the same brush, they actually fanned the flames of the protesters. And it should have been handled uh, from the outset in a very, very different manner. And, and it just spun out of control. Using the Emergencies Act, and I voted for that act, Evan. I think it was in 88 or 89. There's no one in 88 or 89 that actually thought the act would be used for this purpose. There was other things that should have been done a lot earlier on to avoid this, this embarrassing situation for Canada. Should all vaccine mandates end, as conservatives are calling for, the federal well, vaccine mandates? And if you were the leader, would you, yes, okay, would you have all your MPs, would you have said everyone needs to be vaccinated? Would that have been a, a Jean Charest rule? I, I believe that we need to govern by example. If we're going to have vaccines and vaccine mandates, we have to govern by example. But we're arriving at the end of this, or a new episode in this COVID period. Now, you know, we've vaccinated as much as we can, everyone we can. 
now is the time for us to move on to a new uh, era where we're going to have to learn to live with what will be called an, an endemic on uh, on COVID. We're not quite there yet, but that's the direction in which we're going. So I don't, the focus has, isn't going to be on vaccines. Mr. Shura, you advised Huawei during the Meng Wanzhou case and on the uh, 5G networks. Uh, you recently said that you were proud of the work. I just want to show you this clip because your opponents are using it. Here it is. What we did in Huawei, I'm very proud of what we did in helping to uh, sort out the situation of Ms. Meng Wanzhou. And I worked with the family of Michael Kovrig so that we could free the two Michaels. And we, uh, we worked with them very, very closely throughout the whole process. So, Mr. Charest, uh, why were you proud to work with Huawei uh, and maybe even profit from it while the two Michaels were in prison? Now, let, let me put it very simply, Evan. The work that I did helped release the two Michaels, period. And the family of Michael Kovrig uh, can confirm that. I worked with them. I worked with uh, Vina Najibula to make that happen. That's, that's, the, that's the long and the short of it. And I think that's exactly what, uh, what Canadians were hoping for, that they be released. And I was, uh, I was happy to be part of the effort to make that happen. But you know, your opponents are gonna say you took money from Huawei. Was that a mistake? I worked in the private sector, uh, Evan. And you know, if you work in the private sector, you actually have people that uh, come to you to ask for advice and ask help. I'm not embarrassed by working in the private sector, but I can also tell you that I never did any work that was contrary to the interest of my own country. If you don't win the leadership race, are you committing still, no matter what happens in this race, Mr. Charest, are you committing to run for the Conservative Party in the next election? Of course I'll win the leadership race. And after I win the leadership race, I'm going to win a national government with every region of the country at the table. Last question. Um, how could you work with someone like Pierre Polyev if you do win or if he wins and you're, you're working with him? He doesn't consider you a conservative. He's not saying my conservative views are different than your conservative views. He's saying, hey, Sheree, you're not a conservative. I am. How do two of you coexist in that party? And what does that tell you about the state of the party? Well, let's let's take this a step at a time. Isn't that what the leadership race is for? Let the members decide. The members will decide who their next leader is. And it's pretty clear. I mean, what's the distinguishing feature in terms of what I offer? I'm going to unite the party, not divide it. And uh, I, I'm going to unite it around a common vision. And I'm going to elect a national conservative government. Uh, I don't think my opposition is going to do that. I will deliver that for the membership of this party. Jean Charest, I really appreciate you joining us at the beginning of this race. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Evan. Bye-bye. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. Every Remembrance Day, Canadians recite those lines from John McRae's wonderful poem in Flanders Field. It is a reminder of the price so many have paid for the fight for freedom and for democracy. Those words echo now as Ukraine fights the Russian army to preserve their freedom. And they will echo even louder on Tuesday when the remarkable Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, will make an historic address to the Canadian parliament. He will do it from the besieged city of Kyiv. Last week, Zelensky received a standing ovation after giving an emotional speech to the British Parliament, quoting Winston Churchill. 
Ми будемо битися в лісах, полях, на узбережжях, у містах і селах, на вулицях. Ми будемо битися. So what message will President Zelensky have for the Canadian Parliament and what further support is needed for the Ukrainians fighting on the ground? Let's find out. Joining me now is Ukraine's representative to Canada, the Chargé d'Affaires, Andrei Bukvich. Uh, Chargé, always a pleasure to see you, sir. Um, obviously, the situation very serious. Talks keep failing. Um, can you give us the latest on the Russian attacks, their advances, and, and where the situation stands? It seems that uh, despite having huge military advantage, Russia failed to achieve any of its declared goals, which was to capture Ukrainian capital Kyiv in three days, to make Ukrainian army surrender, and to capture a bunch of other Ukrainian cities. They failed, and it seems they are, they are opting for new tactics, barbarian one, I would say. They're uh, conducting acts of terrorism in different forms. It's nuclear terrorism, attempts to uh, use uh, chemical weapons under the false flag. They're trying to stage different provocations. They're shelling maternity hospitals and children's hospitals. They're using uh, all those who are trying to escape from battlefields through humanitarian corridors. They're trying to shell people. They're using uh, human shields to protect Russian tanks. And this is just few of the cases when Russia is trying to use these barbaric tactics to threaten Ukrainians. Okay, I just I, I want to focus in on that. You're concerned about the use of chemical weapons, and you said a false flag. Is that on the Belarusian border? You're, you're, what are you concerned about there? We're getting different reports that either Russia would plan to make some sort of nuclear accident at the Chernobyl or Zaporizhia nuclear power plants, or it also could be the uh, explosion of chemicals near Ukrainian cities like Kharkiv, for example, or it could be transportation of some chemicals through Belarus or Russian border to uh, stage a sort of uh, usage of chemical weapons by Ukrainian army. This is ridiculous and what Russian uh, Russian propaganda and Putin, they're tr trying to justify this sneaky invasion, this war. They're trying to justify their war crimes they're conducting in Ukraine, everywhere. That's why they're trying to be very inventive. Sir, sir is there any hope for talks? Ukraine and Russia continue to hold talks. Uh, are these theatrics or is there any hope for anything to emerge from the talks? Well, President Zelensky clearly stated that Ukraine and uh, himself personally are open to any formats, any talks, including President Putin, just to reach uh, a solution uh, to this war that had been launched by Russia. But it seems that uh, so far, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, all other representatives of Kremlin keep telling the same narratives we've heard about uh, this war from very beginning. It seems they are playing a role, uh, they are puppets of Putin, and it seems that at this moment Russia is not seriously ready to any talks at all. So I seems they need to have even more losses on military front. Okay, um, President Zelensky is going to have, make an historic address to the Canadian Parliament 
on Tuesday. He spoke to Prime Minister Trudeau. He's asking for air support. NATO is saying no. Um, what will we hear from President Zelensky on Tuesday, sir? And what support does Ukraine need from Canada and the West right now? Okay, so uh, I'm not president's speechwriter. Uh, I cannot read the mind of my president, but I'm very supportive of his leadership uh, in this situation, given the scale of tragedy and military actions throughout Ukraine. Uh, my assumption that he will try to be very persuasive and explain to members of parliament what happens in Ukraine, why it happened, and what would we have to do to stop the war and to relaunch the international security system. His message obviously will be about requesting more support because a lot of things never seen before have to be done quickly in the most efficient way to prevent more losses among Ukrainian civilians. Okay, but specifically NATO keeps saying th there will be no boots on the ground and no, no plane. They're not shipping MiGs over from Poland. They're not, there's no no-fly zone coming in. Specifically, what more does Ukraine need and what does Ukraine need now from Canada? We need more weapons to protect ourselves. We need more sophisticated weapons to be effective and counterattack uh, to be more effective against Russian tanks, jet. We need air defense system and, the, and we need them now. Otherwise, the toll on any delay will count hundreds, if not thousands of civilians being killed. Finally, have you spoken to the Canadian government about getting special flights from Ukraine or from Poland or other countries to get Ukrainian refugees to Canada more quickly? Will there be special flights? Do you want special flights? Well, we ask Canada, we ask the uh, government of Canada to help our civilians who are fleeing the terrors and horrors of war, who are looking uh, for temporary shelter in Canada. Personally, I'm getting more and more requests from Ukrainians, friends, uh, people who would like to go to Canada for a while to save their families, to save their children, uh, we realize that uh, all actions possible in this regard should be taken by the government. Uh, unfortunately, so far, only uh, Ukrainians with valid Canadian visa can enter Canada. Uh, I know that uh, the process can be expedited uh, by respective Canadian authorities, but I'm absolutely confident there is more things we can do together to help Ukrainians to flee from the terrors of war. Okay, uh, I gotta leave it there this morning. Obviously, we're, we're waiting to hear the historic words of, of your President Zelensky, who will be addressing uh, Parliament on Tuesday. Thank you very much, Sergei. Thank you for having me. Take care. So as the war in Ukraine rages on, the political battle to lead the Conservative Party here at home is also escalating. Jean Charest, who joined us earlier on the program, believes that his progressive conservatism can beat the center-right populism of Pierre Polyevre and unite the party. But Pierre Polyevre, who has 40 endorsements from MPs and counting, is already hitting Jean Charest hard with ruthless attack ads claiming he's not even a conservative. I just respectfully disagree with the, his decision to raise the sales tax when he was a liberal premier. Uh, he also brought in a carbon tax. 
that makes life more expensive. But it's a crowded field. Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown is now officially in the race. So is rookie conservative MP Leslin Lewis. She's a social conservative. She came fourth in the last race. And there's also Ontario MPP Roman Babber. So what should we watch for as the race gets underway? Is this more than just a leadership race, but a battle for the soul of the Conservative Party? The Scrum is here to answer that. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is Nick Nanos, CEO of Nanos Research. Good morning to everyone. Man, uh, this is a Donnybrook of a race. Uh, Nick, Jean Charest, Patrick Brown in the race. Um, how do you view it as shaping up? Well, you think of it this way, Evan. The modern Conservative Party is littered with progressive casualties. Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, who knows, perhaps Jean Charest and Patrick Brown. The fact of the matter is, is that progressives have not been welcome in this party for the last number of years. It's going to be tough for anyone to get the rank and file. That's different from winning an election, Evan, because more of a progressive platform could win. But getting over the first hurdle is going to be very difficult for any of the candidates, including Charest, if they tilt in the progressive side. Steph, uh, what's your big picture breakdown? Pierre Polyever jumps in early, got a lot of endorsements. His view of the party versus, let's say, Jean Charest and Pat Brown. This is going to come down to hustle, Evan. I mean, winning a party leadership can be about vision. It's also about selling memberships. And if there's anyone poised to be a game changer on that front, it's Patrick Brown. Rival camps are already saying, you know, nobody sells memberships like Brown does. And so can he sell enough, not only to bolster his own chances, but to broaden the party's base in such a way, its card-carrying membership base, that the progressive slate of candidates in this race, because there are a number of them. We, you know, we place Pierre Polyev on the populist center right of the spectrum, but socially he is also a progressive. I mean, he's pro-LGBTQ, he's um, you know, pro-choice. And so the question becomes on that all-important second ballot, where do people rank and who do they rank? Where is Pierre Polyev's second ballot support as people fall off that the party uses a ranked ballot? Yeah, Bob, Bob, your view on that. Pierre Polyev clearly trying to jump out in front. What's your assessment of Mr. Charest and Mr. Brown? This race is Pierre Polyev's to lose. Uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Stephen Harper always made room uh, for uh, moderate and, and progressive conservatives, whether it's Peter McKay or Lawrence Cannon or Senator Marjorie LeBreton. But uh, Mr. Polyev's strategy is to bomb all the bridges. And so he's going to have a small tent right wing party, uh, which is going to make it very difficult for him to buy, uh, be able to expand out uh, in a general election campaign if he wins the, the leadership. And Sheree and, and Brown have a challenge to try to expand the party, as Stephanie said, to sell a lot of memberships and bring more people in to be able, to, if they're going to win on the second ballot. Because right now, uh, Polyev is way, way ahead. And we saw Mr. Sheree in his announcement this week, his social media posting was embarrassing. I mean, this is a guy that should have a, a, a much slicker and smarter campaign. Yeah, Nick, uh, what are the challenges for, for, for him? And then let's not forget about Leslin Lewis, social conservative. Uh, she, came, she surprised everyone last time around. How important is that factor in the blue tent? Well, Leslin Lewis generated a lot of excitement and interest last time. It's going to be interesting to see whether she does even better than she did in her last go. But, you know, the unspoken thing right now, Evan, is that the brand, party brand of the conservatives and I'll put the party brand of the Liberals, they're both in the ditch. People are upset at both of the mainstream parties. 
I think for a lot of people, it's probably a head scratcher as to why anyone would want to lead either one of these two parties right now, because it looks like right now that the center could potentially be abandoned, and that's where most Canadians are. Okay. Well, well, Steph, I, I'm interested in the kind of the, the political ground there. Uh, do conservatives tack right to try to shore up uh, what some perceive as leaking towards the People's Party and Max Bernier? That's the trucker freedom stuff. Uh, do they tack to the center, like Jean Charest talking about, back to the progressive center? Like, what is a more, and where are they more vulnerable right now? Where are they going as a party? Well, there's where they might be going, but there's also where they have to go, Evan. I mean, the reality is if they wanted to tack harder right, that's fine. Is that going to win them more seats? At the end of the day, what they want is to form government. The ballot box question, I think, for most conservative members, surely when I talk to the grassroots, what I'm hearing is they want someone who can win. And what it's going to take to win is to pick up seats. I mean, I'm saying like the obvious thing, right? They need to pick up seats they haven't held before. Mm. Are those seats wildly populated with center-right populists who've been chomping at the bit to vote conservative? I don't really think so. I think those seats are populated by, as Nick says, the middle, where the C Canadians are, most Canadians are. Those are seats, and we talk about them all the time, in the 416, in the 905, in Vancouver's lower mainland. Any party serious about forming government needs a strong presence in those particular seats. Yeah, Bob, last, issue, uh, last point to you, and the issues are serious. Talk about consequential. Uh, generationally high inflation. Uh, so we got big economic issues. The war that's going on. Uh, I mean, this is a... There are serious issues that go well beyond the partisan sniping of who's a liberal and who's a conservative in this race, right? There are consequential policy issues on the table. They certainly are, and I think uh, Mr. Charest has been more articulate than uh, Mr. Polyev on that already out of the gate. He was talking about the need to uh, uh, rein in federal spending uh, that is, has been run away so that you can deal with the, uh, a growing economy. Mr. Uh, Mr. Polyev uh, has been uh, very simple. Perhaps it's good for social media, but it's very simplified. You know, uh, let's, let's just build pipelines. Uh, let's just cut spending. He, he doesn't, he's not articulating anything that I see at this particular point that, that appeals to mainstream Canadians. And, and that's where, at the end of the day, conservatives have to make up their mind. Do you want to sit on the sidelines and be an opposition party, or do you want to be in government? Both Brown and Charest are offering them a chance to form government. Well, uh, and Pierre Polyev has been focusing on inflation a lot, but the question is, how does that go down? Okay, we'll be watching. It's at Donnybrook. Uh, Steph Levitz, Nick Nanos, Bob Fife. Great to have the three of you joining us. Thanks so much. Today's cruise missile attack on the training base in western Ukraine, where Canadian and NATO soldiers were headquartered in their mission to train Ukrainian soldiers, sends a chilling new message. Russia is prepared to go right to NATO's doorstep with its war machine. Now, Russia has now clearly escalated the attacks deep into western Ukraine, calls western supply lines, quote, legitimate targets. Does that change the calculus of NATO countries and how much and what they supply to Ukraine. And as Russia escalates its attack, does NATO, including Canada, have to increase their support as well? The Scrum is here to try to tackle these latest events. Joyce Napier, the CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief is here. So is Marika Walsh, a political reporter for the Globe and Mail. They're both just back from following the Prime Minister in Europe. And our special guest this round is the Canadian Ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray. Good to have everyone here, Ambassador Ray. Let me just start with the attacks this morning. Uh, on the base in western Ukraine, very close to the Polish border, clearly a message 
uh, to NATO. What, what, mess, what does that tell you? What is the message Russia is sending and, and what does that say to NATO? Well, I think we can't be intimidated by, by these attacks. I mean, first of all, those bases uh, which were used for training, um, we, we pulled our troops from there some time ago uh, in an effort to uh, send a message to the Russians that uh, we were not going to be on, uh, on Ukrainian soil with our soldiers in the middle of, of, of an attack. However, uh, I think it's important for us not to be intimidated uh, by these uh, Russian tactics. Mind you, Joyce, you were with the Prime Minister this week. Um, um, I, we all understand Article 5, that an attack on NATO is one NATO allies an attack on everyone. But now there's an attack on Russian supply lines. What did you get the sense that NATO is prepared to do to support Ukraine and to push back on Russia? Well, the sense we got, and that became very clear during this trip, and uh, we met with the Secretary General uh, at a NATO base uh, in Latvia, uh, where, you know, 900 Canadians will eventually be with, you know, soldiers from 10 other countries, that NATO is there as a defensive mechanism, as a containment mechanism, call it whatever you want. But there is, each time we ask that question, about a no-fly zone, for instance, the answer is no. It is clear that what NATO and NATO countries want to do is contain this. Uh, Marika, although they're pouring weapons into Ukraine, and those weapons are now clearly targets by Russia, as we've seen this morning, what does that tell you, and what's your sense of that? My sense, Evan, is that NATO does not want to end up being cornered. They are trying not to put so many parameters around what they will or won't do that if Russia does something, they will be forced to act, going back to Barack Obama's famous red line on chemical weapons in Syria and then not responding to that. So we saw the prime minister and other world leaders this week being very careful in how they responded to questions like Joyce was raising about the war, about supply lines, saying things like they will be an escalation, but not actually saying what NATO would do in order to keep its options open in the event that those things actually happen. Bob, you tweeted out uh, Putin must be defeated. Uh, losing with dignity and honor is not an option uh, and integrity can't happen. Um, wh what do you mean by that? Is, that's not, is that official policy? Um, it, well, it's, it's my opinion, but I, I think it's pretty clear. We wouldn't be supplying uh, Ukraine with, when I say we, I mean Canada and NATO. Uh, we would not be supplying Ukraine with weapons if we were indifferent uh, to this conflict. We're not indifferent to this conflict. Uh, I, I take some issue with what Joyce said about sacrificing Ukraine. I don't think anybody wants to sacrifice Ukraine. I think we want to we make sure that Ukraine has the means to defend itself, and not only the means in terms of weapons, but also that we're keeping it financially as whole as we can, that we're dealing with the extent of the refugee crisis without entering into a direct uh, war with uh, with Russia, which obviously has has many other implications. Okay, I've got I've got a, a quick minute here, uh, Joyce, and then Marika. What are you looking? President Zelensky is going to make an historic address on Tuesday to Parliament. What are you watching for, Joyce, and then Marika? I think he's going to ask for a no-fly zone. I think he is going to ask for more defense defensive mechanisms. I mean, that's what he's been asking for since the beginning. He's going to ask for more help. I mean, they're holding up. Uh, they're being heroic and courageous, uh, but, you know, the Russian army is uh, a fierce and very powerful army, 
and uh, they're not prepared militarily uh, to fight back. Yes, the spirit is there, uh, but not the weapons and not the training and, you know, not the equipment to fight the Russians. So expect him to ask again for a no-fly zone over his country, which means an escalation, which means boots on the ground, boots on the air, whatever. It means that he wants NATO to get involved militarily. Marika, what are you watching for? Well, the quote that stands out for me the most from last week is Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland acknowledging that, yes, the West is supporting Ukraine, but Ukraine is fighting alone. And I think that's what Joyce was speaking to earlier. In terms of looking forward beyond what we expect from Mr. Zelensky of the request for a no-fly zone, the federal government has promised new and novel ways of supporting Ukraine and of sanctioning Russia. So after this five-day trip to Europe, I think we should be looking for what exactly the response is and what changes from Canada and other allies as a result of it. Okay, I got to leave it there this morning. Uh, Ambassador Ray, Joyce, Marika, good to have all three of you on the program as events change. That is question period for this week. I want to thank everybody for watching. I will see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on PowerPlay on CTV's news channel. We'll also have special coverage on Tuesday morning of President Zelensky's historic address to the Canadian Parliament. Hug your loved ones. It's a special thing to do. And we will be back here in seven short days. Thanks for watching.